I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm David Kern with the Cersei Podcast Network, and this is the Ask Andrew Podcast, a weekly show in which Andrew Kern answers your questions about the purpose, essence, and practice of Christian classical education. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded this spring as part of the Ask Andrew webinar series and has been lightly edited to suit the podcast experience specifically. To learn more about the webinars, the podcast, or how to submit a question, head over to searcyinstitute.com slash askandrew. And with that, here is this week's episode. Hope you enjoy. Here we are, another Ask Andrew. Thanks for coming, everybody. And Dad has lots to say, so. <laughs> okay, thank you. All right. Well, listen, it's good to see you again. I owe you, I owe you two things right off the bat. One is an update on my, my detection consulting, private consulting, what do you call it, thing. And then the other is a quotation. And my quotation is kind of a fun one tonight, which is, which is good because I came across some really dark ones too. But I'm going to give you a fun one and a short one. This one says, work is much more fun than fun. That was Noel Coward. Hmm. What an interesting name. Um, Noel, Noel Coward. I believe he's a musician, right? A conductor, a composer, a musician, Noel Coward. Work is much more fun than fun. Of course, if you're a musician and that's your job, then I suppose maybe that's why. But I'll leave that to you to work out and see if you, you agree with that. Um, now, as far as the update goes, you'll remember that that the, the killing took place sometime in the late 16th century, mid to late 16th century. And I've been finding all sorts of evidence. It, it happened near Paris. Um, I've, I mentioned that I found, I found the brains basically bludgeoned. So, you know, I, actually, I, I'm going to change the, the way I put that. The brain was fine. It was the mind that was gone. So you can do what you like with that distinction. But the way I would put it is that the, the mind was um, beat out of every bit of imagination and creativity. And what was left was, and I hope this doesn't come across as unkind, but what was left was something like the Rain Man in the movie, The Rain Man with Dustin Hoffman. And the, uh, the body found wasn't dead yet, but about all it could do is repeat things like phone numbers and memorize a lot, which is ironic because one of the things they stopped teaching was memory. Did you know that, by the way? Did you know it? Now I'm off my, now I'm out of my detection mode here, but did you know that in the late 16th century, Education leaders deliberately and formally stopped teaching children how to remember. Until then, if you went to school, your whole childhood, you were taught memory techniques. You were taught memory palaces, things like that. It was more of a, it'd be like a, a temple or Bible passages or something. But you were taught all these amazing memory techniques. If you want to learn about those, Francis Yates, Francis Yates wrote a very good book, on memory, and then this lady here, Mary Carruthers, she wrote a book called The Craft of Thought. And I just, I love that title, The Craft of Thought. And the subtitle is Meditation, Rhetoric, and the Making of Images 400 to 1200. So if you want an exceedingly boring book to read, but one with extremely valuable information about how the mind works, there you go. Let me add one more thing, since I'm on that subject. The highest point in human history, in terms of understanding the inner workings of the mind, 
was almost certainly between the 12th and 16th century and maybe the 4th century, 5th century rather, BC. But between the 12th and 16th century, they had just enough writing and just enough practice and just enough exercise that the mind was functioning at the highest level it ever functioned in human history. And since the 16th century, we've been in a steep decline. And that's why you get to sit here listening to a moron talk about intelligence. Can you imagine what we all could have accomplished if we'd been trained? Anyway, all right. So not to make you all bitter, because remember, work is more fun than fun. Also, we got a lot more than we deserve. You got to admit that. So um, now by way of question, the question for tonight is kind of the same question as Tuesday. You all look like it's a Thursday and you're all worn out from a boring and long and stressful week. So I'm going to try to bring in more fun tonight, right? Because work is more fun than fun. So now I'm going to make you work really hard to make it fun. But on Tuesday, I, I, the question I was addressing was, can you give me an example of how to teach history classically since we aren't supposed to teach subjects? And that's, I'm going to continue talking about that, but with a little bit of an adjustment, a little more precise way of, of looking at it. If I'm teaching the liberal arts, and, they, and specifically I'm going to apply this to the trivium, I'm going to assume that's what the person meant. If I'm teaching the, the, the liberal arts of the trivium, grammar, logic, and rhetoric, how do I track the subjects? How do I, how do I note them, right? So my state says I have to study history, but you and I know my kids can't learn history. And the state doesn't know what history is, so they make me learn it. So what do I do? Okay. Well, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And the truth is, it's, it's surprisingly easy. In fact, you can teach history about 10 times more effectively by not teaching history than if you teach history. Which, of course, what I mean by that is, if you teach history as a subject, you won't teach it well. But if you use the liberal arts to teach the content of history, then wonderful things will happen. And Rosario can can tell you about some of this, I can almost guarantee you, although I'm putting her on the spot because we have not had this discussion. I just know that they do amazing stuff over there at Aquinas Learning Center. Okay, so quick review. I made a couple claims last time. I claimed that students can only learn the arts, they cannot learn subjects, okay? And in fact, I'm going to add to that, if I didn't say this already, that to try to teach them the subject before they can learn it forces you to change the subject in order to teach it, which means not only does the child's learning suffer, but the subject suffers. If you'd like to see that played out in history, in college, I had to read a textbook called um, What is History? They couldn't make up their mind. They had no idea. Right? Because they didn't see it as something that comes later. They saw it as they didn't know what they saw it as. So they literally, this whole textbook, the, whole, the conclusion they drew is, we don't know. Just teach the class. So both the subject and the child suffer when you try to teach it at the wrong time. Now, let me draw an analogy to make that point obvious. If I try to teach calculus to a second grader, I'm going to have to change what calculus is, aren't I? Now, I have an advantage because I can use the, uh, the Greek word cal- calculus, which just means grain of sand or counter, right? So I can play with, cal- I can play with little, little, piece, little rocks, really. It's a pebble. I can play with little pebbles and we can say, hey, we're doing calculus and the state wouldn't know. They don't know calculus. So anyway, the next point I was making was that subjects and textbooks aren't classical. Subjects aren't a classical concept and neither are textbooks. Now, that puts us in a spot. We have to teach subjects and we have to teach textbooks. Well, generally speaking, we have to use textbooks. So what do we do? I'm not going to deal directly with the textbook issue today, but it's not a hard one to deal with, but I will indirectly deal with it. I'm going to deal more directly with the question of how do I teach the subject if I'm not teaching the subject? Or how do I say to the person who has called something this word, how do I tell them, yeah, I taught what you wanted me to teach there, right, in a way that they understand 
but you still don't compromise what you're actually teaching. Do you see what I mean? How can I teach them grammar, logic, and rhetoric? My, how can I teach my children grammar, logic, and rhetoric, but say to the state or say to my school, here, I taught them history. Now, in the last session, I don't know if this person's here tonight because I don't know who asked it, but in the last session, somebody asked, well, what if I'm in a progressive school and, or in a state school and I, or in a Christian school? And I, they didn't ask that, but it's not that different. Um, and I have to teach with the textbook and I have to teach the subject. Okay, then how do I teach the arts? That's going to come up in this discussion because, as I said on Tuesday, you don't have to worry about it, actually. Now, there's a principle here that I want to draw on before I get into the details because the principle is something you can carry with you in everything you do. It's one expressed by our Lord Jesus many times, really throughout the whole Bible, but, but very directly in Matthew chapter 6 when he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Okay, C.S. Lewis says, if you seek for earth, you lose everything. If you seek for heaven, you get heaven and earth thrown in. Same basic idea. If you seek to know God, if you seek to be united with God, then you are like Mary, calmly sitting at the feet of Jesus. And you're getting something that can never be taken away from you. But if you're like Martha, running around the house, worrying about, careful and anxious about many things, then not only do you lose the opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus, not only do you lose the opportunity to be united with God, but because you're not united with God, you're not doing what you're doing wisely, and you're going to lose it. You see the principle? So what I'm saying here. And I don't want to overly spiritualize this, but what the, the basic point is, hang on a second, let's move that. The basic point is that if you strive for something higher, if you seek something higher, you'll get the lower stuff. But we get confused about what's higher and lower. If you seek truth, it's not hard to find applications. If you seek applications, you may or may not find truth. So, all right, that's the context. Now, I'm even, I'm so, so, so on top of the game tonight that I'm actually going to use a whiteboard. See, I can go high tech. Anyway, can you see what that says? Across the top, G, L, and R. Does anybody want to guess what G means? G, L, R. This stands for glare. And what it's about is the glare on the board that's making it so you can't see it. Now, that's just a coincidence. This is why in Latin, my name is Felix Concordia. It's, it's, it means happy, happy coincidences. That's my, that's my Latin name. Okay, so GLR stands for grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Now, can you see what this says here? This says history, this says literature. We might or might not get to this, but I just put it here to illustrate. You then can go right down the table. Now, here's what I wanna recommend to you. If you are in a school, or you just need to do this for yourself, for your own files, for your own conscience. If you're a curriculum designer, this is what I would urge you to do. Have a, to start with a worksheet that across the top says the word grammar and down the side says the subject, con the content area. Then make another sheet that says logic and do the same thing. Then just do that as a, maybe even make, if you like this kind of thing, what they now call mind maps, I call them invention trees because they come from rhetoric. Um, go ahead and make, make a, an invention tree and brainstorm with yourself. What are the things I'm going to teach in grammar while I do this subject? It won't be terribly difficult to do this. But when you're done, you can then take those worksheets and make a table. Then you can take that table and bring it down to a spreadsheet. And then you can take it to your administrator, to your state official, to your husband, to your wife, to whoever cares, whoever wants to know, whoever thinks they have authority over you in this matter. And they'll look at it and go, oh, I see. OK, so you're teaching history. That's great. And all along, you'll be fooling them because you won't be wasting your time teaching history. You'll be cultivating wisdom and virtue in your children. See how clever that is? So. How would, how would it work? Now, if you go back to the other day, one of my claims was that in every subject, as we call them, well, no, I didn't actually say that. What I said was in every art, in the trivium, trivial, trivial arts, there are forms 
and there are skills. There are forms and skills. Now, this is where it does help to know what comes under the given subject. But don't let it bog you down because I'm not talking about deep and complex stuff here. What are the basic skills? Does anybody remember what are the basic skills of grammar? So let's, let's look at, okay, so interpreting signs. Now, observation and naming, good, good, okay. Now, fundamentally, grammar has to do with interpreting signs, which means reading and listening, okay? Now, reading and listening are two ways of paying attention. So the fundamental skill on which everything else depends is the skill of attention. And I would urge you, therefore, to note how you're going to cultivate your students' attentiveness in this, in this subject area. What in history uniquely arouses their attention or can be used to get their attention? Then comes listening. Do not just think to yourself, oh, human beings listen. They just do that. Be sure they do. And they do it pretty badly, let's face it. Okay? So what are you going to do to cultivate their ability to listen? Their ability to read, to a very surprising degree, depends on their ability to listen, especially if you're reading to them. Then the next skill is reading. Okay? So you're going to list. What are we going to read? But more importantly, how am I going to teach them how to read using history? Now, this is a crucial point because, because in history class, if you use textbooks, they're going to teach the kids how to read. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. They're going to teach the kids how to read. But the way they're going to teach the kids how to read is so bad that nobody should ever read that way. For example, you're going to have a chapter, and it's going to have very big, bold headings, right, that says, this is where you are, you moron, and then it's going to say what it says. And then at the end of the section, there's going to be two questions or something, and then there's going to be another big heading that says, hey, stupid, this is where you are now, and then they're going to read another page, and then there's going to be a big old picture, right, that's going to distract them, and they're not going to, they're not going to look at the picture except briefly, and some kids might, but then on the next, and there's going to be a little caption underneath that says, look at, there's a tall man in this picture. You're too stupid to see that. And then on the next page, it's going to say another big, huge heading. Hey, foolish person who can't read. This is where you are now. And then there's going to be a, it's probably going to put words like summary at the end. Because you're too dumb to know that I'm now summarizing for you. And then there's going to be five to seven questions, most of which are questions that nobody should ever have to ask. Right? And what you're going to learn by reading that way is how to read very, very badly. You're going to learn how to read like a slave. What you want to do is you want to teach them how to read like a free person. You want to teach them how to ask questions. Okay? And in listening and reading and attentiveness, what drives all of them is the skill of, I'm going to call it questing by which I mean asking questions. Searching. Quairo is Latin for search, uh, seek, search. Quiso is another way to say it. I think if my memory serves it's the same basic word. Okay, so there's, quest, there's asking questions, which is these, four thi these three things, attention, listening, and reading, are all one fundamental skill, which is beholding is what somebody put. Now, if they're asking their own questions, and that's what you want as soon as possible, is you want them asking their own questions. For that reason, under rhetoric, you're going to have the common topics. And as we've talked about, I think, before, you can use the common topics with a kindergartner. How is X like Y and how is it different? Sorry if you can't read that. That's just because it's my handwriting. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a decoding issue. So, so, so the common topics are questions they're already asking. Now what they need to do is learn to ask them while they're reading. And, and you have to model it for them. So take an actual book or an actual picture, an actual image, an actual story. Read the story with them and get them to compare characters with each other. 
That, by the way, is the single most powerful way to learn history is by comparing actions and characters with each other. Compare Caesar crossing the Rubicon with Washington crossing the Delaware. Okay, now, there are then, I'm going to, well, the tradition calls them, you can't read this, but there it is, it's scribbled up on the board, special topics. Now, here what you want to ask is, are there any particular questions, sorry, that's skills, and then common topics and special topics. And here what you want to ask is, are there any questions, any common questions that are unique to history? Right. In other words, in history, what do you ask differently from what you would ask in literature? Many of the questions are the same, compare, define, and so on. But what's different in history from literature? Those things, unless they're also mathematics, are unique historical questions. Now, around middle school, probably, you can start really emphasizing those because now you're actually moving in the direction of doing history. I don't know if I can give an example. Let me try. Um, so the common topics, again, would be comparing. So, okay, let me be cheap and easy about this. A common topic would be comparing two characters, right? You can do that in literature and you can do it in history. A special topic would be comparing actual historical characters or going to actual historical places, right? So, and, and what I just did might've seemed really cheap to you and really obvious, but that's because I live in the level of the obvious. I try so hard to notice what's obvious. And I'll tell you what, when we write and when we teach writing to kids, we tend to be very discontent with them stating what's obvious. I think that's a mistake. The obvious is absolutely wonderful. The deep stuff, I mean, if you're skating across the pond of the obvious, don't worry about it. The ice will occasionally break and you'll plunge into the freezing depths of deep thought. But you can get back out. It's here at the obvious plain level of life that we see the best stuff most of the time. It's all sitting there right for us. So yeah, master the obvious. And in history, that's what we want to teach them how to do is see what's right in front of them, whether that be in a story or, or whether that be in, um, in historical events. So, that, so I use that example not to squeeze my way out of a hard place, but to find the easiest way out. Okay, listen, my time's up. But do you see how you can do this for any subject? And get to know a little, a little bit, if you're able, uh, some of the specific forms and the specific skills of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Very quickly, I owe you this. Okay, the forms of logic reduce to the syllogism, but that's not all logic gives you. That's a form in logic. Okay, in, in grammar, which is literature, really, and history, it's things written. In here you've got you've got the sentence, right? You've got the paragraph. You've also got you've also got uh, historical narratives. That's a form. Do you see that? You've also got if we're going to go literary, we've got sonnets. We've got epics, right? We've got sentences again. Okay. So what you want to focus on in your teaching, the younger they are, the more you want to focus on it is universal common forms. If they get good at, at using the obvious forms that we always use, like sentences, then it's a whole lot easier for them to turn and find the more obscure forms like sonnets and epics and sentences, right? Or, or rhyme schemes, those are forms. Right? A form is just a pattern of relationships. Okay, so that's how you can do it with grammar, and then you do it with logic. Same thing is, you know, the, the skill of logic, I would argue, the fundamental skill of logic is identifying, um, identifying and resolving uh, discord. Identify, well, that's a universal skill, isn't it? Identifying and resolving logical breakdowns, right? Logical, logical fallacies or, or logical inconsistencies. And then, of course, another skill would be creating a syllogism. Now, I, forgive me, I, I shouldn't go into that much detail just because that's not what the question is about. But I don't want to leave it, you know, just floating in the air. There are some basic skills that we can call grammar and some basic skills that we can call logic and some basic skills that we can call rhetoric. And if you master those, you're a good thinker.
right? So if you feel frustrated that maybe I'm maybe you don't you don't know all this vocabulary, even for example, doesn't matter. You already play with these names. You'll be able, these animals. I mean, you'll be able to understand their names just by paying attention to the way you you play with them. And give yourself time. There's no hurry. Don't waste time, but take the time you need because there's just no hurry. Just learn it and teach it to your kids. If you're teaching these, my, this is my summary. If you're teaching grammar, logic, and rhetoric, oh, lost my daughter. If you're teaching grammar, logic, and rhetoric, then they're learning what they can learn. And they will be better at history. They will be better at literature. And they will be better at everything else they do as well. But if you're teaching them history in a fragmented, broken way, they're not going to learn grammar, logic, and rhetoric. They're not going to learn to think very well. And they're not going to learn how life fits together. Okay. A form of logic would be a syllogism um, or a sentence, really. Uh, um, yeah, sorry. Um, there's also a bunch of other ones like, um, um, oh, golly, sorieties. Sorieties is when mo you don't actually run into syllogisms terribly often in real life. What you usually run into is a chain of about six or seven or eight sentences. And that chain of sentences then will be presented to you as two sentences. And you're going to have to then create, yeah, dilemma, good, that kind of thing, right? So if you, can, if you can learn how to string together a series of sentences, then you will become a truly obnoxious person. Also, you'll be able to write coherent paragraphs. So again, what I'm getting at here is really simple. What your kids need to learn is grammar, logic, and rhetoric. But that's nothing new. There you go. That's me. I just say the same things over and over again. It's all that squirrel running around the backyard. Okay. Are you ready to move on to some questions? Well, One you're obviously anxious for it. So, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I know what would happen if I don't interrupt. <laughs> she's um, actually been very faithfully telling me that my time is way up, but she's been kindly doing it in private. Um, your first, so a lot of the questions are similar. They're very related today, Good. which I think will be helpful. Probably you can use common topics to answer them then. They're also related to what you've been saying. Okay. The first one, um, what would you say for people who are wondering practically where to find resources? Can you point them to somewhere where they can buy, if not textbooks, something? What, what can they yeah. practically be given? Yeah. Well, Susan Weisbauer has some really good for history. Is I'm going to take that as specifically for history. Susan Weisbauer has some wonderful storybooks. She calls it the story. I think the story of the world. And yeah, that's right. she's a good writer. She's a she's an she's an awesome researcher. Phenomenal researcher. Um, so I would I would start with that probably. But then you know you remember up until the 50s and 60s. I mean, I wasn't there either, but you, you, you probably have seen these in libraries or somewhere. They had just reams and reams and reams of these wonderful children's books for kids. Now, there's a problem with them in that they did tend to be exceedingly, we would say, maybe now Eurocentric. So, for example, I've got one called, um, If You Were There with the Sioux Indians. Well, you're not allowed to call my native tribe the Indians anymore. They have to be the, you know, the Sioux, whatever they are. Um, but it, it was a wonderful book and my Indian blood wasn't terribly offended by it. Mind you, there's only like one 512th Indian in me. So that's probably why it wasn't offended. It wouldn't have been hurt anyway. But anyway, the problem is there that, that there is this, um, Eurocentrism or, or maybe it's white supremacy. I don't know, but you have to, you have to, uh, you have to deal with that. The GA Henty books are, are fun reads. My problem with the G.A. Henty books is they're all the same plot with different characters. So you're not, you're not particularly learning history, um, but, you know, you're, you can be learning how to read. Yeah, indigenous. That's the word I wanted. Thank you. All right. Time's up. Sorry. Well done. Okay. Um, another question very similar to that. Um, what would you say to someone who's wondering how to structure their day, especially with many different kids and a lot of different needs? And now you're saying not subject. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot to juggle. What would you say for how to provide structure to a day? Yeah. Structure to the day. The first thing I would say is the one lesson that history does teach. 
the way Hamlet's father, uncle rather, said it is um, every father dies. The, uh, the more p- pleasant way to think of it is succession is difficult. Okay. Transitions are difficult. The hardest thing about shifting to this way of teaching isn't teaching this way, it's transitioning. And so if you're going to transition to teaching like this, what I would urge you to do is not do it while the airplane's taking off. Um, Maybe, maybe pick one day of the week. Yeah, Ambleside Online. Maybe pick one day of the week um, where you're going to teach this way with a story and discuss it if you haven't done it before. Maybe just do it one day a week. And then go through a process of, of, um, well, really, I would say finish out the year or maybe get to the next vacation and give yourself at least a week of just decompressing, right? And while you're decompressing, jot some notes like what I'm putting on the board here and, and maybe get someone to coach you along if you feel like that would be helpful. And along that line, by the way, you know, Katie works as a, as a personal consultant to homeschoolers. So if any of you are interested in, in having an hour discussion about how to do this in detail, talk to Katie. That's a question, though, Kate, Katerina, Julia, if I may hold on to that question, because it's kind of a big one. And I think yeah. I'd rather deal with that question of structuring your day as the 15-minute one instead of the one-minute one. Would, let me just see, if is that something that is, is that a general question that people would want addressed, or is that... 25. Okay, a lot. All right. So it sounds like the structure of the day would be important. So let's do that for a main question. Oh, please. Okay. How do you know now? I will mark that for another main question. Okay. Um, Related to that as well, what would you say about um, all of the great book books lists that everyone has and is anxious about? Yeah. Um, Is less more? Should they try and do all of it or some of it? What would you say to that? Well, If you go to the ocean to go swimming, you don't look out at the ocean and cry because you can't swim across it, right? You just swim on the beach where you are. And you don't cry because you can't lie in every beach. You enjoy the one you've got. And I think we have to approach books that way. There's a a compulsiveness sometimes about books. FOMO, you know, fear of missing out. I have this, no doubt about it. I I have a a terrible anxiety that some amazingly great book that was exactly the one I needed to read at this moment in my life is, I can't, I'm I'm not, I'm going to miss it. And so consequently, what happens is I look at all these glasses of wine on the table and I never pick one to drink it. And, and to me, what you need to do is not not gaze on the wonderful surface or or uh, not surface but not gaze on the wonderful number of things but the one that's in front of you enjoy it a work i mean a book is a vessel for an idea for ideas for beauty right it's the beauty that you need to perceive it's the it's the truth that you need to see it's not the book that you need to read Yes, some reveal more than others, so you should prioritize them. But what's most important is to train your perception to see the beauties and the truths, and that's grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Read fewer books. Oh, can I say one more thing about this? My time's up, but can I add one more thing? I'll grant it. Andrea Lipinski wrote a Circe Guide to Reading, and... I was just looking at it yesterday. She took ideas that we had developed in the apprenticeship and my name's on it too. So I should just admit that. Um, but I picked it up yesterday and I was really impressed by what she did in this book. And if you want to get a think, think Mortimer Adler made doable. If you've ever heard of Ad, seen Adler's book, how to read a book. Um, don't even bother. It's, it's unless you're a, super high flying scholar that book will drive you crazy but if you want a book that teaches you how to pick up any book and approach it and attack it that's what this book by by andrea and to some extent me is about and i would i would recommend something like that because what you need to do is okay (laughs) only took four years to to read fair enough 
and and Adler was a genius, no doubt. He was a genius and very powerful thinker. Um, but I wouldn't. Let me just rephrase everything and say I wouldn't start with it. Start with something more accessible, and that's what that's what this guide is. Thank you, and that'll help you in any subject with any book. But don't read too many books. What made me think of it is at the beginning, it talks about treating a book like a friend, right? You don't want a thousand acquaintances. You want some good friends. Great. On that note, what would you say about how, did, how, does, how do we teach the Bible mm. and or um, what should we be doing in Sunday school? Huh. So those are... Right. Separate questions that intertwined. Well, in a way, they're the same question because because it comes down again to mimetic teaching and it comes down to that approach of of the really, I would say the should question. Good grief, especially in Sunday school. What we basically do is moralize the poor kids to death anyway. So why not? Why not lift it a little bit above moralizing and make it interesting? Right. Read, read the Bible story and ask, do you think Zacchaeus should have climbed the tree? As soon as you ask the child for his opinion, he's going to be involved. He's going to care more. But if all he's doing is passively receiving, then he's going to passively receive, right? And then he's going to passively dispose when he leaves. So I would say that in, in our church schools, in our Sunday schools, we ought to be approaching the, the Bible as a book that was meant to be read and thought about and talked about. That way we can actually teach them how to read and think about and talk about the Bible, right? We, we, we have this one hour, maybe half hour time session during which we can we can interact with the kids and we complain all the time about how little time we have and then we get anxious and we think what matters is the content well the content does matter because it is a picture of a truth right but what matters is is their ability to perceive the truth in the text so that's not that hard to it's not that hard to talk to the kids about stuff like this okay last question related to that one when we say Jesus is the incarnate word, and we think of that in light of education, subjects, curriculum, how do we avoid becoming preachy or over-connecting? Jupiter is big, like Jesus is big, rather than just saying Jupiter and trusting that perceptions and God, Jesus, spirit will come forward. So when are we... Yeah. Well, I, I, think the, I think the last sentence is the answer. Read, read, read the, last, the last clause or two, rather than... Read that part. Rather than just studying Jupiter and trusting that perceptions and God, Jesus, or the Spirit will come forward. Yeah. This is the thing people have to understand, in my view, about truth. We have this idea that truth is somewhere out there hiding, trying to be, you know, making itself difficult. It's not. It's not at all. It's obvious. It's right in front of you. Right? It's just sitting there wanting to be seen. And, and what it wants you to do is look at it. And if you, if you look out into the creation and you just look at it, you're looking at truth. That's what really is, right? And so if you want to go deep, what you do is you keep looking. That's all. You don't try to look through. You don't try to look around. You, you just keep looking, okay? And so, so when it comes to Christ the Logos, let me, let me turn that into a, a more personal way of putting it, that we know that the heavens declare the glory of God, right? We know that the earth is full of his handiwork. So we don't have to be saying, like most Christian school science textbooks say, don't forget Jesus did this every third page. It's so freaking annoying, right? You want to you destroy a kid's faith, be anxious about it, right? If you want to destroy a kid's faith, make, make sure that he gets the feeling that Christ isn't evident everywhere, that, that the Logos isn't just gazing on and shining on the world. Make sure that they don't see what's right in front of them and instead engage in a constant argument. So to summarize, since I'm now out of time, the point I want to make is that truth wants to be known. And if you want to know it, it will tell you how to know it. Okay. The analogy I would draw is if you want to read the Bible and understand it, read the Bible and pray. And while you do, it will teach you how to read it, right? I, would, I can almost guarantee you that almost all of you have experienced that. By reading the Bible and listening to it, it tells you, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't say, hey, now you go to the next chapter. 
You just you just do it. You get you get it. You understand because it raises the questions that it's going to answer. Great books do that because they want they want to lead you if you're willing to follow. Truth is shining through these things, shining on and into these things. It's not hiding. Would you say then practically for lesson planning, um, it's better to not have in your head, okay, I'm going to teach this thing about Jesus, but just have in your head the lesson or what the logo. Yes, absolutely. When you teach a child, sorry, I interrupted you. When you you teach a child that three plus two equals five, you've just revealed something about Jesus to him. There's no need to say that. It would be, they don't see it. They can't possibly understand it at that point. So to say it will only distract them from learning that three plus two equals five. But when you've taught them that three plus two equals five, they've learned something about Jesus. The way I like to think about it is this. The sun is shining shining on the whole solar system, right? If I go study Jupiter, I'm not studying the sun, am I? I'm studying Jupiter. And I see the red spot. And I see that it rotates. And I see that the storm is moving around. And I see that it's a big gaseous planet. I see all these things about Jupiter. I see that it has some moons that with a really good telescope, you can see these moons. All these things about Jupiter I see. But at some point, when I'm ready to ask this question, I'm going to ask myself, why is that red? And then I'm going to have to ask, what is shining on it? Right? Where does the red come from? And then I'm going to say, oh, there's a sun shining on Jupiter. That's the, that's the point, right? If you annoy them with Jesus, they won't want to meet him. But if you make them look at what Jesus has done, they will meet him, all other things being equal. And please don't misunderstand me. They can wander far afield, but you don't want to help them wander away. You don't, you, um, well, you don't want to compel them to wander away, right? You want to you at least make our Lord attractive, and he's attractive because the heavens declare his glory and the earth is full of his handiwork. And he doesn't want you to sit there constantly going, don't forget, Jesus, don't forget I did this. He's not vain. Don't forget I did this. Don't forget I did this. No, he just wants you to enjoy it. So if you want your children to enjoy God, let them enjoy the gifts that God gives. And yes, they will idolize them just like you do. They will. So you also have to teach repentance. But that's just part of growing up. Okay, my time's up. Um, I've had quite a few requests for the whiteboard. I will take a photo of that or type it up if Father's handwriting is not legible. Yeah. Um, and I will make that accessible for everyone. So. I have a better idea. Do, do that. But let Katie, let's take it and actually develop it a little bit so it has more meaning. Because okay. all I was doing here was showing you a no, now I'm reconsidering. All I was doing here was showing you how some of the skills in grammar, logic, and rhetoric can be put on the board. My fear is that if I tell you too much, then you won't think about it, and then you'll just become, you'll just, you know, not, not learn some obvious things. So maybe we should have a requirement here that if you want us to do some kind of a, you know, basic spreadsheet or whatever, first you have to at least spend five or ten minutes on each one because I really really, really want you to come to understand that you already know. Let me rephrase. You have already experienced all of this. What this is doing is renaming and clarifying experiences that you're very familiar with. That's important. Yeah, spoon-fed is never ideal. Yeah. Yeah, I'll get that sort of The answer to the quadrivium is yes, um, but you will get it more... On the one hand, it'll be more obvious. For example, if you're supposed to teach math, it'll be obvious that arithmetic is teaching math. On the other hand, it'll be less obvious because arithmetic is a different thing in the classical tradition, except at the basic level of adding, subtracting, multiplying, and dividing. Good book article on the quadrivium, golly. Um, Probably the best book on the quadrivium that you can find right now is by Kevin Clark and Ravi Jain as an introductory. Um, CAP sells it. I think Caldecott, Stratford Caldecott, has a book on each, the trivium and the quadrivium, and, and it's very good. He's a little more, well, let me, let me say this. 
very sadly, he died while he was working on the book on the quadrivium. And, it, and then it was published. And I, I wish he had had a chance to really refine it, unless I got it backwards. Um, but um, as far as getting it really root, uh, boiled down to what we're trying to do tonight, which is to say a program, a, a, a structure, a curriculum guide, as it were, I don't know of one. I have not been able to find one. And I don't think, well, the closest I've seen is a guy named Benedict Ashley, who was a monk. And in the 50s or 60s, Benedict Ashley wrote a book. Well, he wrote a guide for the seven liberal arts. He didn't approach it the way I would have, but that doesn't mean <laughs> doesn't mean I'm the one who would have done it right. Um, but if you can find it, and I doubt it, but if you can find it, it'll be free. Um, just look up Benedict Ashley, and I think it's A-S-H-L-E-Y. And I think probably it would be a PDF that you could get your hands on. Um, I don't know how accessible, how easy it would be to teach kids. Uh, but that's what it's for. Am I, let me think about this for the next session, too, to see, because my, my dream is to actually get something that explains all this in a, in a coherent, practical, actionable, day-to-day -day way. Um, but see, what, what happened, as you know now, is that in the late 16th century, education shifted from art to method. But when it became method, they didn't stop teaching the arts. They just taught them really badly, gradually worse and worse. So we have to dig back to it. Well, you're right, Rosario, but even there, astronomy is, it comes so much later, right? And so, so I have an idea for what 11th and 12th graders should do for astronomy. But first, they have to get ready for it. I will say this, that as far as geometry goes, there's no question you should use Euclid. Um, music, there's the instrumental part of music that you should start when they're, they're little and, and, and they should be, if you possibly can, train their voice. And I would highly recommend teaching piano and violin because piano is arithmetical and violin is geometrical. But they also need to learn it does, yes. Yes, and I think that's based on the idea that grammar is about knowledge and that if you look at the sky, you're getting uh, classical astronomy. Um, see, what's missing, I have to look at that book again. It might be wonderful. I can't remember. What's missing from modern math and modern astronomy is meaning, right? What does it signify? And that's what we have to, that's what we have to re-figure out. Okay. Um, well, all right. I'm going to, I'm going to try to pick up some of these questions going forward because what I don't want to do is to create, you know, here's a step now, go out and try it. And then, you know, good luck. I, I want to be able to help you practically step forward. If you want to go into a lot of depth, then you know, the atrium this fall, the, the apprenticeship, um, more materials online are available, but I'm perfectly happy to keep doing this. So Navari Science has done some really wonderful things too. Yep. And CAP, I think, is publishing that now. Mm -hmm. Just understand that when I talk to you, I'm talking about what I believe ought to be done which is simpler, but not easier, and hasn't been done in some cases for hundreds of years. And frankly, on astronomy, I really don't know exactly what should be done because astronomy, I've talked about how rhetoric got killed. Another thing that got killed is astronomy with Copernicus. And, and I don't know what's left of classical astronomy after Copernicus. I have to figure that out. So far as I know, nobody's explored that question in the last 200 years. So when you're, <laughs> my apologies, but when you're listening to me do these talks, part of me is saying, look, this is simple. Let's get down to it. Let's just get on with it and let's focus on what matters most. And at the 
K to 10 level, it is. But then when it comes to the more advanced foundational stuff, it's that's why I like to use the image of the consulting detective. It's a deep investigation, and I'm trying to figure out who's the killer and what's left of the carcass. <laughs> um, is there any life left in it? Top book to read for getting started with classical home education. I'm going to suggest that the first book might well be Charlotte Mason's book, The Philosophy, her philosophy of education. Don't be put off by the title. I think it's fabulous. It's, it's incredible. Um, but if you want, if you want something maybe more condensed, I wrote a book called with Dr. Jean Edward Veith called Classical Education, because I am a genius for titles. And the um first chapter of that out lays out the four elements, the four essential elements, the sine qua non, as it were, of classical education. And you might find that helpful. But but and maybe I should even say if you want to get if you're getting started and the first book you want to get would be our reading guide so that whatever else you read next, you can get a lot more out of it a lot faster. But I, I think Charlotte Mason's probably the best. Yeah, John Hodges is extraordinary. Um, but it's, again, it's that question of getting started. Yeah, st start, start with Charlotte Mason. Maybe, maybe read Charlotte Mason and then Dorothy Sayers, The, the Lost Tools of Learning. Put those two, because there's, nice, there's a nice tension between them and it's exceedingly fruitful. They're both women, so I can't exactly say this, but it's kind of like the tension between male and female and the fruitfulness that comes out of that. Well, thank you. Oh, you know what? If you're going to talk about stuff I've done, I am going to mention the, the nature talk. Um, I did a talk called The Contemplation of Nature in 2009, and it is and always will be the most important talk I've ever given. It, it's it's um, if, if the, if the uh, what, I, what I contend in that talk is that um, Archimedes said, give me a lever and I can move the world, right? Just, it's got to be big enough, but I can move the world. And my argument is the world has been moved. And the lever, the fulcrum on which the world has been moved is the concept of nature. The single most important concept that we have to come to terms with where we have gone wrong as the human race is is how we think about nature because that is one of, that is the most fundamental concept we have to think about things it's related to genesis 1 you can get that free on our website um, if you just go, go to our website and do a search in it just call, probably even put nature talk or something like that oh that's beautiful thank you rosario it should be really easy to get if you have any trouble Right, a contemplation of nature. It was the opening talk for our 2009 conference. Every year we do a, a theme, and then I do an opening talk on that theme called a contemplation of whatever the theme is. This is a challenging time, so I'm really, really glad that I get to spend a lot of it with you, or a good bit of it with you. All right, thanks, and may the Lord remember you in his kingdom. 